Broadcasting live to the world now. It's Sheila Zielinski. Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, end-time watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this October 30th, 2015 edition I'm going to jump right into things today because we've got a lot to talk about. My guest today is, you all know, Chris Putnam. Of course, he authored Petrus Romanus and Ex of Vaticana with Tom Horn, as well as him and Tom have a new book coming out. We're going to talk about that as well. Chris Putnam, it is such a pleasure to have you on the program. Welcome back. Hey, Sheila. It's great to be back on the show with you. Well, Chris, one of the things that I find so fascinating being that you're the author of Petrus Romanus, when you look at that prophecy, it really does appear that this is where we're at in time. This Pope, Pope Francis, it's looking more and more like he is Petrus Romanus. It looks that way. I'm real careful about saying that I know that because I don't. It's just a, it's an old prophecy, right? And things are lining up to make it seem like it's happening. Um, it hasn't been falsified Anything that I put Petrus Romanus, all my ideas about why this could be it, I didn't even, he wasn't even elected whenever we wrote that book, right? Um, but everything that we said has been corroborated. It's happening. Confirmations don't prove a theory. They, they help you believe it more, but they don't prove anything because it's easy to find confirmations. What we're looking for is falsification not to happen. So the only way he's falsified is if he steps down, nothing happens, somebody shoots him. He goes through his whole papacy, and he never calls down fire from heaven like the false prophet said to do. You know, and if none of those things happen, it's falsified, it's wrong. You know, and I'm open to that, too. But all I'm saying is nothing has done that. And I wrote down most of my ideas about what I thought would happen before he was even elected, and he's fallen right into that template perfectly. Well, Chris, we're talking about a very old prophecy. Talk about the 900-year-old prophecy of the popes. According to this prophecy, if the legend's true, during the reign of Pope Francis, this is the prophecy. In the extreme persecution of the Holy Roman Church, they will set Peter the Roman, that's Petrus Romanus in Latin, who will nourish the sheep in many tribulations. When they are finished, the city of seven hills, classically that's always been Rome, will be destroyed, and the dreadful judge will judge his people. The end. The extreme persecution of the Holy Roman Church, they will set Petrus Romanus, this character. I think that's kind of like a symbolic name. I don't think it's a literal name. Many people were upset that Pope Francis isn't named Peter. I thought that was kind of silly myself, because the whole claim to the power of the papacy is based on the disciple Peter. Jesus praised him for that, that confession that he gave, that testimony that he gave, and he said, you know, because of this, you're the rock that I'm going to build this church. This is the rock that I'm going to build my church on, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, the debate is, was he saying that Peter was the rock that the church was built on, or was he saying that Peter's testimony that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, was that the rock 
that the church was based on. Now, Protestants will tell you it's that confession that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Lord. That's the rock the church is built on, not the person of Peter. And an easy proof of that is read the next three or four lines. Jesus says he's going to die for our sins. And Peter says, no, Lord, that'll never happen. I won't let that happen. He says, get behind me, Satan. So Satan actually spoke right through Peter right there. So if he's your first pope, you might want to reconsider that, because he never went to Rome, really, and was the Bishop of Rome. That's their whole claim. And I proved that very well in that book. If you wanted some anti-Catholic apologetics, um, this undermines their whole claim to authority, because if Peter's not the first pope, they don't get what they call apostolic succession. That just means authority from the apostles succeeds from apostle to apostle to apostle. In this case, it would be Bishop of Rome to the next Bishop of Rome to the next Bishop of Rome. The authority of Christ, that's why they call themselves the Vicar of Christ, comes from Peter, supposedly, from that incident when Jesus blessed him. But then he, he cursed him in like four lines later and said, get behind me, Satan. So it's not a great argument. And I think the book of Acts proves Peter was never the bishop of Rome. Because if you read Acts, the whole first half is about Peter. It ends. It's the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. It's the last time you see Peter. Then it's about Paul. Guess where Paul ends up? He's in jail in Rome, okay? And Peter's not mentioned at all at the end of Acts. And that's the exact time the Catholic Church would have him there as the Bishop of Rome. Also, the Book of Romans that Paul wrote to the church in Rome has greetings and salutations to over 17 people, and not one of them is named Peter. So you can take the New Testament and debunk the authority of the Catholic Church yourself just by reading those letters. It's really not that hard to do. And if you look at the dates when they claim Peter was Bishop of Rome, that's when Romans was written, that's when Acts was written, and it just doesn't work. And so the whole claim for the papacy having Petrine, they call it the Petrine office based on Peter's name, you know, Peter the Roman. It's all a, this Peter the Roman is a symbol of all I'm saying in this prophecy. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that uh, Pope Francis can't be Pope. It just means that it's the final Pope. It's the final Peter in the list of the Roman Catholic Church. That's the way I see it. So in extreme persecution of the Holy Roman Church, there will sit Peter the Roman, who will nourish the sheep in many tribulations, yeah, it sounds like the end times to me. And when they're finished, the city of Rome, the city of Seven Hills, will be destroyed. <laughs> That's pretty apocalyptic. And the dreadful judge will judge his people. That sounds like Jesus coming back, you know, kind of the great white throne, sheep and goat judgment type thing going on somewhere. The end. So that prophecy, like I said, it's allegedly 12th century, but I found a copy in print, no doubt about it, 1595. That's still pretty old. Wow. Okay. So there were 70 popes left on the list in 1595. And so I wasn't even interested in the ones before 1595 because you could fake that. You could look at a history book and copy what happened in that pope's life, write a little prophecy, make it look really good. And a lot of them do look that way. And I think probably part of the first part of that document was forged to make it look better than it did. But I was more interested in the ones after it was in print and you couldn't fake it. And some of those are astoundingly accurate, so accurate that you can't just brush it aside because they're too accurate. Now, the one with this pope, it remains to be seen. I think that he has proven very well to be a false prophet, if not the false prophet. So from this prophecy and several others and the way the world in general is heading, we are 
hypothesizing that Pope Francis is the biblical false prophet, the second beast in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, who helps the Antichrist. That is what we are arguing. But in his mind, I don't think he thinks he's evil at all. I think he thinks he's doing the right thing, which is unfortunate. Uh, But a lot of times that's the way it works. Um, People actually think they're doing the right thing, and and they're not. Um, Now, I could be wrong, too. But I'll tell you what I see wrong with Pope Francis currently. He's a Marxist, for one, and I don't agree with Marxism. Marxism fails because it does not account for the depravity of man. Man is sinful. Nobody on earth is qualified to distribute wealth equitably amongst everyone. So Marxism says we're going to redistribute the wealth so there's no no poor people. But what happens is the guys that get put in charge of redistribution keep the dang money. And then the poor people don't end up getting half of it anyway. And we see this all the time in all these communist systems. And like in Africa, we've probably sent enough food to feed the starving in Africa a hundred times over. And some warlord will sit on it in a warehouse and let it rot because he's trying to sell it. And he, he just won't give it to them. So redistribution of wealth by human beings is doomed to failure because humans are depraved and sinful and they're not Christ-like. There's only one person who can make the world right, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's coming back to do that, and, but when he comes back, he's going to be a little angry, and many people are going to suffer wrath, the wrath of God, and that's what's coming. It's not going to be a pretty sight at first, but the end has a great promise. It's going to restore the world to Edenic conditions, to the Garden of Eden, and nobody's going to be hungry it says he's going to wipe away every tear and dry every eye. But that tells me there's going to be some crying. And that's us. That's us Christians, because we're the only ones that are going to be left standing, pretty much. And we're going to be crying probably mostly over the lost opportunities that we had where we could have witnessed or, or we could have stood up for what was right and we didn't do it because we were selfish and we were sinful. We're going to be crying. And I think it's over our own behavior right now. I'm not really fully prepared to face all that, but I I think it's coming. Yes, I totally agree. It's coming fast and furious, too. And, you know, you you mentioned something. Well, you mentioned a lot there. But what's really interesting is keep in mind the unprecedented papal switch of 2013 that saw Benedict step down and Bergoglio step in, who reportedly also took his papal title after St. Francis of Assisi of Italy, the founder of the Franciscan Order, the Friars Minor. Like Hitler, St. Francis was a not just a devout admirer of nature, St. Francis was a full-on pantheist. Now, St. Francis also gave up considerable wealth. You've got to remember his father was Bernadone, the rich textiles merchant, and that was back in 1250. So you got to, you know, when you go back that far, and then you think, well, here's this new guy. He jumps in there. He's taken on that whole redistribution of wealth, and in his very unprecedented 192-page climate encyclical or what he calls right, right. ecological it's called the common good so of course it's always it. yeah. yeah it's the common good the moral imperative it's always the greater good well when you think he's saying to the catholics okay listen up 1.2 billion catholics you better start bowing down to mother gaia and like it i mean it looks like he cut and paste mark's 1848 communist manifesto right in his encyclical that is ironic but what's also 
very stunning is that he's actually the first Jesuit pope in history. Now, when you think about Ignatius Loyola and the real strict upholding of religious law, I mean, what is your what is your take on the fact that he is the very first Jesuit pope? Well, that has so much uh, meaning and significance. Um, most people are completely unaware, and you know, if you're not a Catholic, there's not really any reason to be aware of it, I suppose. Um, so, you know, it's not like you're woefully ignorant by not knowing all that stuff, because I've done a lot of digging, and, you know, the fun part of doing interviews with you, Sheila, is you do a lot of digging yourself, so you ask really interesting questions that most people aren't wouldn't even think of, so it, it makes it a lot more fun for me. Um, now, he is the first Jesuit pope, uh, and what makes that really significant is this fellow Malachi Martin that we keep mentioning. Now, some of your listeners might not know who that is, so we're going to talk about him real briefly. Malachi Martin is a Catholic. He was a Jesuit. He's the only Jesuit that I know of who's ever uh, requested and received a release from his Jesuit vows from the Pope. Now, let's make no bones about it. He is a Catholic. He prays to Mary, he does the rosary, he does confession, he does all the sacraments. So even though we kind of talk about Malachi Martin kind of like a hero, I have some real theological problems with what he really believed as far as his theology. I think he was probably saved. I think there's a lot of Catholics that get saved through the gospel and almost in spite of the system because they believe in the resurrection they believe Jesus died for their sins. So you can get a lot wrong in your theology, but if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that you don't earn it on your own merit, this is where Catholics could get in trouble. You do not earn your salvation by obeying Catholic theology rules and going to confession and doing the rosary. That doesn't help at all. I don't believe in purgatory, but see, that's what they, that's how they hold, prop the whole system up with purgatory, because then if you fail to do those things, you'd have to go to hell and then the gospel wouldn't be true. So to get out of that, they put purgatory in the middle, and that kind of gets them out of the trouble, because you can believe the gospel and then keep sinning and just work it off in purgatory. So it's kind of like the, the little you know, trampoline that catches you when you fall, and you bounce back <laughs> up. Um, but it's not in the Bible. Uh, it comes from the apocryphal literature, uh, and it's, it, was, it wasn't even canonized by the Catholic Church until the Council of Trent in the 1500s. So that ought to tell you something. So Malachi Martin was a Jesuit. He was a very uh, educated man. To be the kind of Jesuit he was, you have to have three PhDs. He was one of the original guys that translated the Dead Sea Scrolls when they found them, okay, back in 1948 and the early 50s. He was the guy that was actually translating them into Latin and English for the first time. So that's how smart this guy is. He's a, he's a genius. He's a Semitic languages scholar. He's a political scholar. Um, three PhDs, advisor to three different popes, you know, advanced member of the Jesuit order. So what happened is Vatican II came in in the early 60s under Paul VI and John Twenty-Third, I think, was right in the transition of those two guys. And um, when Malachi Martin saw the kind of theology that they were writing into Vatican II, basically that Muslims are saved just because they believe in a creator, don't need the gospel, you know, a lot of crazy stuff like that. I think he just kind of said, I can't do this anymore. So he remained a priest, and Pope Paul VI actually wrote a letter 
official letter and signed it, releasing him from all of his Jesuit vows so he could go and expose what he saw as a massive corruption of Roman Catholicism, an influx of Luciferians. He made no bones about it. There are a group of high-ranking cardinals and priests who worship the devil, okay? And it gets worse. This is what the pedophilia thing is all about, all the sex with young boys. All around the world, all the priests are getting in trouble. It's not just sex. It's ritual magic. Yes. It's satanic magic. And, and he made very clear in nonfiction book, The Keys of This Blood, nonfiction, that that's what's going on. Okay, it's not doesn't mean it's all that, but it means a significant portion is ritual, satanic sex magic uh, by using young boys in rituals and uh, for various purposes. And this is happening all over the world. Um, he named the group the Superforce. Uh, he also called it Lucifer's Lodge. There's a book by William H. Kennedy called Lucifer's Lodge, and he worked very closely with Malachi Martin. And I think Martin even wrote the foreword to the book. So Lucifer's Lodge will explain to you how the pedophilia connects to ritual Satanism. Um, so Martin exposed all this. He got released from the Pope in the, in the late 60s so he could write books about what he saw, the problems that were destroying the Catholic Church in his mind. The first really significant book, it was a bestseller, uh, it was called The Jesuits, all right? The very first chapter, the very first line, the very first sentence of the book, there is a war between the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit order, and the papacy. Okay, that's the first line. That's the thesis of the book. And he, he's telling us that the, the Jesuit order has become increasingly communist, liberation theology, which is something that was invented by the KGB and the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, whose name is Patrick Krill, He's still, he's right now, he's the prelate, the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church. He was a KGB agent. This is all documented, and I'm going to have footnotes for all of it in my book. This is the one me and Tom are working on now. Patrick Krill is a KGB agent. He created liberation theology to infiltrate the Catholic Church in South America and take it over for the Soviet Union. There's no doubt about that. This is a documented fact. All right, so that's Patrick Krill. He's the leader of Russia right now. Now, Vladimir Putin, also KGB agent. He's got a lot of Christians cheering him on right now because he's against homosexuality. He's bombing ISIS. You know, but he's also bombing the insurgent groups that we're supporting. So we have a Vietnam on our hands, and most people aren't even aware of it, but Obama is funding certain Syrian militia groups who are fighting President Assad. Russia is bombing the groups that we're funding because they support Assad. We both hate ISIS, so every now and then Russia will attack ISIS, but very few and far between. Most of their attacks are on the groups that we support against Assad because they defend Assad. They don't really care about ISIS that much because it weakens us. It weakens the other groups that are fighting Assad too. So we have a proxy war. We have another Vietnam. Instead of the Viet Cong, it's, these, it's Assad. Putin supports Assad. Obama supports several, I don't know how many, four or five smaller groups that are fighting Assad. I, ISIS is also fighting Assad, but none of us like ISIS because they're killing everybody pretty indiscriminately who's not a, you know, a pure Muslim in their eyes, what they think of a Muslim is, which is very close to Saudi Arabian Islamic theology. In fact, it is basically the same kind of theology. 
So that's where ISIS fits into the Syrian picture, and there's the proxy war between the United States and Russia. Now, Pope Francis came out and gave a little talk, and he used very specific terminology from St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine. It's called the Catholic Doctrine of Just War. And the terms that he used come directly from their writings. And he was talking about, we need a just war to stop ISIS. Frankly, I agree with him, because there were 1.2 million Christians in Syria two years ago. Today, there are less than 30,000. Okay, think about that. 1.2 million down to less than 30,000, and that was a couple weeks ago. I'm not saying they're all dead, but the refugees... Some of them are buried in mass graves. We have no idea. What we do know is that the intelligence officers that work for the CIA and the NSA, 50 of them signed a complaint saying that Obama is cooking the books to make this look better than it really is. So it might be worse. It probably is worse. Um, So we're talking about three-quarters of a million Christians who have been displaced or killed in Syria. And that sounds like the book of Revelation, which talks about the martyrs of Jesus being beheaded. And, I mean, that might be it. It really could be, and maybe we're just observing it and not even realizing it. I mean, it wouldn't shock me if we were that clueless, because, you know, it could be that God centered it all right there in that that part of the world on the Middle East, and we're just kind of observing it. I have gone back and forth on this for years, and sometimes I wonder if Islam, I'm almost starting to think maybe Islam and the Vatican are in cahoots here because they're so equally evil, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I'm going to peel the Mahdi apart in in this book. (laughs) I'm going to expose this as a hoax, I think, um, because so many people are expecting it. Somebody will step in and claim to be him, probably. But as far as the actual prophecy, I can prove that it's plagiarized from other sources. The Hadith, where they say Muhammad said it, are probably just plagiarism. I think I have a really, really strong, powerful argument. And it's not just from me, it's from a lot of other scholars that prove that the early Hadith writers... So, just to explain to the listeners, in Islam, the main book is the Quran. And it's pretty obviously copied from the Hebrew Bible and then given a Muslim spin. You know, instead of Isaac being the son of promise, it's Ishmael, right. the first Arab. You know, so they take the same story, obviously they copied the Bible, and then they spin it so they win and we lose. And that's basically how that works. But most of your eschatology does not come from the Koran. Most of your end times knowledge in, in Islam comes from what they call the Hadith. And that's just a word for the sayings of Muhammad. And there's like, you know, a bunch of these huge books with all these little sayings from Muhammad, the prophet said this, the prophet said that. And it's almost like too much to believe. It is. And not even all the Muslims accept them. There's some they trust, some they don't, and there's arguments about that. And it's worse than our canon situation, way worse, because some of these hadith are like way out there. And uh, others are really trusted. Now, ISIS is following the template of the end times that you find in the most of the hadith. In fact, the areas of Syria that they're working the hardest to control are because they're predicted in the Hadith. Um, the city of Dabiq, Syria, Dabiq, D-A-B-I-Q, is prophesied as one of the final battles where they will defeat the Romans. <laughs> what does that mean? Does that mean back then it meant the Roman Catholic Church and the Crusaders, literally the Roman Empire. Um, today, I think it probably means 
the United Nations coalition. Uh, I think the United Nations is basically the revived Roman Empire. And that's what Pope Francis said. He said, we need a just war to stop ISIS. That's, that's a direct quote, to stop ISIS. And he was real careful. He said, when I say stop, I mean stop. I don't mean decimate. I mean, you know, stop them. And see, if you look at the Catholic doctrine of just war, they have something called proportionality of your response. Like, you don't want your response to be disproportional to the threat. Like, dropping an atomic bomb on a city that's shooting at you with machine guns isn't really quite fair. Right. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. You have a proportional response to the threat, level of threat you're experiencing. So, Pope Francis actually even said that. So, he's really he's invoking the doctrine of just war very clearly. And people have read it, you know, all the Catholics that are familiar with it know what he was saying. He's calling for a just war, a just war against ISIS. Now, here's what he said that is really the giveaway. This is what's really going on in my mind. He says, not one nation can do it. You know, this is like cowboy diplomacy. It has to be done. He says, after World War II, we formed something called the United Nations. And this is the way that we should do this. We need the United Nations to stop ISIS. Exactly. Okay. So here's, here's what's going on in, in my mind. And it's called the Hegelian dialectic. And a philosopher, a German philosopher named Hegel came up with it. And the idea, and it, it works, it's true. This is the way we negotiate, even. It's the way we haggle for prices when we go to the flea market, um, you know, or an open market, and we, we haggle over a price. It's called, you know, it works this way. So you give an idea, and it's kind of the idea everybody accepts, but then you give a radical opposition to that idea that most people will, won't like at all. And it's the antithesis, okay, the opposite of that idea. Idealism, there was a guy named George Berkeley who said to, to, to um, perceive a thing is for it to exist kind of thing. And, and Berkeley was a, was a bishop in, in the Episcopal, uh, the Anglican Church. And what he was saying is the only reason that things exist is because of God. So he answered the question, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? You know, most people debate that. How do you know? How could you ever know? And some people say no, because there's nobody there to hear it. Well, Hegel said, yeah, it makes a sound because God hears it. If God wasn't the, the ultimate witness, the ultimate observer, nothing would happen. <laughs> that was his argument. It was an argument against atheism. But then people like Hegel, they took it and turned it into postmodernism, where there's no reality unless you perceive it. Absolutely. And like, it's all based on you and your own mind. Berkeley was not saying that at all. He was saying that God is sovereign, and without God, nothing happens. So we owe everything we perceive to God, and that's the way he was arguing it. And most people don't get it, and they accuse him of being a subjective idealist, meaning it's all inside of you. He was actually an objective idealist, uh, meaning that everything exists because of the Creator God. And that's the difference. Hegel you know, is the one that came up with this Hegelian dialectic. Well, so the Hegelian dialectic is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So the idea is to move someone away from your thesis, you give them an objectable antithesis. Instead of settling on that, they will sort of compromise and go toward the synthesis. So we have ISIS, violent, cutting people's heads off, scaring everybody to death, threatening us with Sharia law, that's the antithesis to capitalism and freedom. So what's the synthesis? How can, how can we prevent this terrible antithesis you know, and compromise our freedom a little bit 
you know, at the same time, we'll be a lot safer because we get rid of ISIS and all this horrible Sharia law, beheading and stuff. So what's the synthesis? We need a new world order. We need a world government to protect us against these terrorists. We need a one world currency to protect us from economic destruction. You know, if it all fails, if the dollar falls and everybody goes poor, you know, we need it all under the United Nations and we'll be safe. And that's where all this is coming from. It's pushing globalism. It's pushing uh, one world currency, one world economic system. It's pushing a totalitarian army to govern the world. And that's where it's heading. So, you know, I don't think ISIS is going to manifest the Antichrist. ISIS is the antithesis that's pushing us toward globalism. Yes, absolutely. Well, earlier in the interview, you mentioned the Mahdi and how you're going to be addressing this in your book. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, well, the Mahdi is the Antichrist, and they're going to worship him. You see, they actually think Jesus is returning. The Mahdi is just a regular human being in Islam, Yeah. Uh, for, for most of the Sunnis, anyway. The, the Shia have this idea that he's immortal and, like, hidden in a cave somewhere, and they call it, like, he occulted himself, which means he disappeared, and the, in the end times he's going to reappear but he never died or anything. He's been alive the whole time. He's the 12th Imam. And so that's a whole different Shia belief. But the Sunnis laugh at that. And the thing most people don't realize is most of our literature about the end times in Islam is based on Shia eschatology. But the Shia are really mostly Iranians. It's, It's also Hezbollah, who is in Syria. But they really are not the ones who are most likely to try to hotwire the apocalypse, to quote a scholar I've been reading. The Sunnis seem to be more self in, in self-control because, you know, you have people like the Saudi Arabians, and they're all about money. So, you know, they, they don't want to upset the flow of money too much. But actually, your Sunnis are much more apocalyptic now than the Shia. Things have changed, and what changed them was the Iraq War yes. <laughs> and killing Saddam Hussein, because all of that Republican Guard army and all those trained soldiers, Saddam had a real army, and they know how to use real weapons. These aren't like Mujahideen from the desert firing at us with 1950 rifles. These are trained soldiers, and they all went to ISIS because the United States military went in there and ran them out of there you know, or killed them. But the ones who survived, the tough guys the guys that were able to stand up to our soldiers, guess where they are? They're in ISIS, and they're not, they're not wimps, and they're not unfamiliar with how to use sophisticated weaponry. These are real guys. They now drive tanks. They now shoot missiles. That's why the Iraq army runs when ISIS approaches. That's why ISIS is driving American Humvees and tanks, because we left them for the Iraqi army to defend themselves. They saw the black flag coming over the hill. They ran, and guess who got all the all the uh, Humvees and tanks, ISIS. So they're shooting at us with their own weapons now, just like the Taliban did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when we came back after we, you know, we weaponized them to fight Russia, they beat Russia. And we came back for some Osama bin Laden, and all of a sudden they were shooting at us with their own guns. We've done that over and over again, by the way. So, you know, that's where we are in Syria. So we have Pope Francis calling for this just war, but the main idea is that he is emphasizing it has to be the United Nations, not America, not one country. It's a, it's a call for globalism, and it's really a play for globalism. And, you know, when I say a play, 
people go, so you think Francis sat down and worked out this whole thing so he could make a global government? No, I don't think that. I think the Bible tells me in Ephesians 6.12 that we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. That's right. Okay, these guys are immortal. So five human lifetimes can go by while they're working their plan out. All right, most people don't even notice it because it's so slow that they die before it ever comes to pass. These guys have the advantage of not dying, so they can work out long plays. They can work out strategies that play out over three or four different human lifetimes, over hundreds of years, and it moves towards their goal. And their goal is a one-world government, an antichrist, a false prophet, and the subjugation of Christianity. Um, And I see it happening in droves. And the thing that people don't get is that there really are powers and principalities, and there really are long play strategies that might be even playing over a thousand years. And, and if you don't have that perspective, you'll never see it. But if you look at it from that perspective over the last couple hundred years, it's astounding how quickly it's moved. Uh, but not over one human lifetime. I'm talking about maybe two or three. If you look you know, back to when our parents were born, they had oil lamps. They didn't even have electricity in their houses Today, you know, we're watching Netflix and complaining because the movie we want to see is not on yet. It's just ridiculous <laughs> how much progress has been made. And then we look at the Internet, and it just can't go much further, I don't think, before the Lord intervenes, especially with biotechnology, uh, abortion, three-parent babies. I mean, it's getting insane. And uh, I just can't see how the Lord can allow it to keep going. Well, you know, when you look at these Catholic priests, of course, you talked about Malachi Martin, but whether you look at John O'Connor, Alfred Kuntz, Father Malachi Martin, I mean, look at Father Barry, whose book, The Apocalypse of St. John, he foretold the usurpation of a papacy by a false prophet. Her, um, Herman Bernard Kramer, he had the Book of Destiny. He painted this terrifying scenario in which Satan literally enters the church. He assassinates the true pope, possibly during conclave, in order that the false pope can rise to rule the world. And so over and over, you see these various ones that are saying, hey, listen, sinister false Catholic infiltrators that are linked sort of geopolitically are going to influence Rome. They're going to be controlling future global elements in matters of church and state. And it's interesting, the theme that we see play out, as you said, you know, when the Pope is calling for a one world climate authority, a global government, a totalitarianism, where you're going to see this fusion of one world currency, one world religion, even look at Chrislam. You know, you got Absolutely. The- well, I mean, how far is what Pope Francis is doing right now from Chrislam? He had Islamic prayer services in the Vatican yes, last year. Yes, he did. Year. He was actually inviting them in to say Islamic prayers at the Vatican, and vice versa. He went into the mosque in Turkey and prayed. And, and let's get one thing straight, in case you know we have a listener out there that's not familiar with why that's really bad. Uh, you know, in Christianity, we have the gospel. That's what the whole thing is centered on. The gospel is defined by Paul in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 3 through 8 or so, it says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he showed himself to the Twelve. You know, he showed himself to James. He showed himself to Paul. And last of all, you know, Paul is the last one. He saw him on the Damascus Road. 
and it completely flipped his worldview. He went from killing Christians to being one of the best Christian evangelists in the world ever. So something flipped his worldview. He had everything to lose by yes, doing that, yes. and he gave it all away very quickly because he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. All right, so that's the gospel. So if you don't believe Christ died for your sins, if you don't believe that he was buried, you don't believe he was resurrected, you're not saved. That's Christianity, period. <laughs> the, the Catholic Catechism says Muslims are saved because they believe in the Creator, period. Basically, that's the only reason they're saved. And they says they're our brothers and we should respect them, blah, blah, blah. I don't have any problem with treating them with respect as fellow human beings. But I would never tell one of them that they're saved because they believe in a creator. The book of James says, you believe God is one. The demons do as well, and they shudder. Okay? So believing in a creator doesn't cut it. The Koran insulates Muslims from the gospel. If you believe the Koran, you cannot believe the gospel, because the Koran says, no, they didn't put Jesus on the cross. It was somebody else. They faked him out. Jesus did not die. He was assumed up to heaven the way we see in the book of Acts, but he never died. He never resurrected. He never died for your sins. You can't get your sins forgiven, period. You have to earn it. In Islam, you're put on a scale and you're weighed. If your good deeds outdo your bad deeds, you make it. If your bad deeds outdo your good deeds, you don't. It's all based on works. And the Apostle Paul could not have said it much clearer than we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's all the grace of God. And that tells me Christianity is a divinely inspired religion because no man would have ever made it up. People like to take credit for their accomplishments. Like, when I earn a trophy, I want to feel like I actually won the race. I don't want someone to give it to me. You know, I'm not proud of that. And I like, you know, to be proud of my accomplishments. I like to earn it. When I get my paycheck, I like to feel like I actually earned the money. They just give it to me because they like me. That's the way humans are, okay? The idea that God would die for you, impose his righteousness upon your sinful life in order to accept you as righteous is so anti-human in its logic that I can't believe a man made it up. It really sounds like God did it because humans don't think that way. I can't even imagine a human coming up with that idea. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing that people do. <laughs> um, the idea that Christ died for us, and then when God looks at me in my fallen state, and with all the sins I've committed and all the bad things I've done, he looks at me and he sees the record of Christ, and he imputes that righteousness onto me so that I can be in the presence of a holy God who otherwise I would probably dot dead or catch on fire because of my sinfulness. I mean, when he told Moses, you can't look at me, he meant it because he was so holy. And I don't understand holiness exactly. It's a word that means set apart, but there's something about God that's so different than the way we are that it's incomprehensible. His holiness, they say it's like a burning fire. He's so pure and good that we would basically die if we saw him in our sinful state. Um, we don't understand how bad we are is the other part of the equation. But Islam denies the, the gospel, specifically denies the gospel. So Islam is not possible. It's one or the other. You, you can't have a middle position. You have to believe he died for your sins and rose from the dead, or you're not saved, period. And I, I just can't back away from that. The Catholic Catechism, Vatican II, they all back away from that. There's no gospel. I don't even know why they bother calling it Christianity anymore. Well, 
when you kind of look at the fact that the Roman Catholic Church allegedly represents one-sixth of the world's population, over half of all professing Christians, and then this is the same diplomatic corps of ambassadors posted in all these industrialized nations globally, over 180 nations of the world sending their ambassadors to the capital city, the Vatican. It's pretty frightening when you really step back and take a macro view. And then you've got this blueprint for infiltrating the Catholic Church, you know, and it links all the way back to the Freemasons, which is really frightening what you uncover, the links to the Masons. And again, we've covered all these various authors. The infiltration just knows no bounds, doesn't it? Yeah, you're right. And if you look at my book, Exa Vaticana, on the cover of the book, there's a UFO flying over the Vatican. Yeah, just like, wild-looking photo. You're like, ha, ah, these guys are, they must be kidding, right? Tom showed me that cover. I'm like, great cover. How am I ever going to justify that? Because <laughs> I, di- I didn't have any justification for that cover. That you know, I don't mind, you know, having a little bit of fun with it, but, you know, I, I want it to basically have some factual basis. And so I saw that cover, you know, UFO shining right over the, right over St. Peter's dome, you know, shining a beam down on it. I'm like, oh gosh, we can't do this. And then, <laughs> I got on the internet and I found out in 1978, even in the New York Times, they ran an article that there was a massive UFO flap over the city of Rome. Now this was also the year of three popes. It was unprecedented. You had one die, then John Paul I comes into office, and he only lived 33 days, and then he died, and then John Paul II, the real famous pope a lot of us probably remember, was elected. Now. The reason why I mentioned that, that 33-day papacy of John Paul I, most people think he was murdered by the Freemasons because the first thing he did when he came in office is he solicited a report on the Vatican Bank because he thought something hokey was going on with the money. And he got that report. Two days later, he was dead. All right. Now, they were doing some dirty deals with the Masons and some other things, I believe. He uncovered some nasty business, and the people behind it, silenced him very quickly and none of us have ever really found out all the details there's a couple books about it i quote them uh in this book and in petrus manas we did a little uh, i got a little more into it here's some, some new facts now i argued that pope francis is the false prophet now a big piece of that argument is not newspaper exegesis it's from the biblical text it's actual exegesis in Romans 13, it says he has horns like a lamb, yet speaks like a dragon. Biblical scholars are in pretty wide agreement that the symbol of horns is a symbol of power. So when you know a leader is described as having horns, or the little horn in Daniel that grows to a big horn, it's a, it's a symbol of power. Okay? And like a lamb, I don't think you can get much more obvious that that's trying to say that he's seen as a Christian or like Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, the Lamb is a sacrificial animal, blah, blah, blah. So, like a lamb. Horns like a lamb. Powerful Christian leader. Seems that way, but speaks like a dragon. So that's exegetical. That's nothing but the text of Revelation. The main reason I think the false prophet might be a pope or at least some kind of Christian leader. But when you ask the world who's the most powerful Christian leader, you're probably going to get 90% of them saying Pope Francis. Okay, And that's just kind of a, a truism. Most of the world thinks that he's 
the leader of Christianity, whether it's mainly out of ignorance because they don't understand that Catholicism really is, a, is not Christianity anymore. It's, it's actually a separate religion um, based on a sacramental system and purgatory and a bunch of stuff that doesn't come from Jesus Christ. Now, so we have the exegetical reason there. Now, here's where it gets supernatural. He chose the name St. Francis. Now, I wish he called himself Peter the Roman. It'd make my job a lot easier. But um, <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. He called himself St. Francis. And, you know, who is more thought of as like a lamb? You have this whole image of Bergoglio is so humble. He won't even live in the spatial papal apartment. He, he chose to live in this little room. And, you know, he, he sneaks out at night and feeds the hungry. And he's so lamb-like. He's so humble. He's so sweet. He's such a nice man. But watch what this nice man's saying. Uh, he had a debate with an atheist in the Italian newspaper. He said, atheists can go to heaven. Just if you obey your conscience, you please God. Okay, he said yeah. that. Yeah. Now, the book of Hebrews says you can't please him without faith. And you have to believe that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Okay, that's what the book of Hebrews says. You can't please him without faith. Faith in what? Your conscience? Well, the Bible doesn't say very good things about our consciences either, especially if you're a non-believer. Uh, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can comprehend it? That's your conscience. That's your heart. I mean, a lot of us have good hearts and good intentions, but you know that old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's really the gospel. That's where the rubber meets the road. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? Did he die for your sins? Are you a sinner? Do you deserve to go to hell? That, this is the questions that really matter, and you never hear Pope Francis talk about them. Um, so we have Pope Francis you know, doing that. We have him calling for a new world order, a one world currency. That's been talked about quite frequently at the Vatican to solve all these economic problems. You know, We need this United Nations peacekeeping force to get rid of ISIS. Uh, for that, we need a world government. Uh, atheists are saved. We can have Islamic prayers at the Vatican, even though they don't believe the gospel. Climate change that you talked about, you're, you're right on the money. This is what they're using. They're using climate change as a means for globalism, because the only way we can deal with this global problem is to have a global coalition, right? Bingo. And he's right on it. In that same speech, he also talked about the redistribution of wealth. In, that, in the same one about climate change. So he said we need this world organization to help us manage the, the problems with climate change, which is probably bogus science anyway, and you know, nothing to it, nothing to really worry about. And uh, Peter, in one of his letters, I think it's Second Peter, um, talks about God's going to destroy the world by fire. Now, I'm all for being a good steward of the environment. I don't throw trash on the ground. You know, I don't want to dump noxious chemicals in our wool drinking water or any of that kind of stuff but i'm not worshiping the earth either it's not my hope and it's not my god it's not alive i don't believe in gaia and i believe god's going to burn it up and remake it so you can't save it even if you want to so too bad Pope francis he just doesn't believe the bible i mean it almost seems like he's unfamiliar with it but you don't get to be a jesuit without being a smart guy exactly. so he knows the bible he just doesn't believe it 
Well, yeah, he's really pushing this pantheistic Gaia-loving death club, trying to run around saving the planet. And then on the heels of that, of course, he's also pushing this idea that we should get prepared for an alien savior as you lay out so well in your book, Exo Vaticanum. And by the way, that is one of the best books I have ever read in my life. It's so well documented. I just, it, it's a stunning piece. And if you don't have it, folks, on your library, get it, Exo Vaticana. But what's interesting is I was reading that book. One of the things that really stunned me, Chris, was that Guy Consul Magno, here he comes out and he's basically saying this is society's going to be looking to an alien savior for mankind. Now, what's frightening is when you see, and I've documented this over the last three years, is the amount of times that we are sort of being prepared, predictive programming and layer upon layer and really acclimated to this idea of an alien savior. It's really frightening when you look at these things that you and I would have thought would be right out of a weird science fiction, right out of a twilight zone. (laughs) I mean, these are things that we're seeing now. Yeah, we are. You know, it's so weird. You know, I'm trying to, we're writing this book now about ISIS and the KGB and Pope Francis and liberation theology and, you know, how all this could play into, you know, the scenario that we wrote about Petrus Romanus. And, you know, kind of gotten away from the UFO subject. But let's remember, Roman Catholicism is a UFO religion, in my mind, because of this Fatima thing. You know, everybody talks about the third secret of Fatima and all these uh, prophecies that were given by Mary. Let's get this straight. Mary was not there. It had nothing to do with Mary, and there's no evidence that it had anything to do with Mary. What happened is thousands of people reportedly were out in a field in Portugal because three kids were channeling, channeling, just like New Agers, who go into a trance and start talking with another being possessing their body. This is what was going on, channeling, all right? So we have a 12-year-old girl, I think like a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, and they're all hearing messages from Mary out in the woods, all right? And then they get a date. Mary says, tell everybody, come out here on this date, and I'll show them that it's me. So they tell everybody, the whole town comes out. Some people say it's like 20,000 people were there. There's newspaper articles. You can find them on the Internet, black and white, with all these people standing, looking straight up in the air. All right, what are they looking at? Well, if you read the descriptions, a gray silvery disc was flying around, shooting out rainbows of colors. How is that Mary exactly? Where, where is Mary described as a disc in the Bible? <laughs> I, I don't get it. But anyway, so they see a UFO. It's a mass UFO sighting reported in 1917, way before the UFOs were talked about in the United States and all the, you know, the UFO stars. That happened in the 40s after World War II. So this is 1917. They're describing a flying saucer. They said a silvery flying disc. That's what people in 1917 described. They said that, okay? way before the UFO phenomenon became popular, and anybody even ever heard the term flying saucer. Kenneth Arnold termed flying saucer uh, in 1948 yes, when he correct. saw a UFO. And actually, that was a misquote. He didn't even call it a flying saucer. He said it skipped across the sky like a saucer, as if you, know, you skipped one across a pond, how it skips across the water. That's what he was saying. And the press messed it up and called it a flying saucer, and it stuck. But that's really not even what he meant. But... In this case, all these people in Portugal see this flying saucer, then the kids start channeling Mary, and they get these prophecies. All right? Now, there's a big debate whether 
the papacy under Benedict. They released the third prophecy. A lot of Catholics think that's bogus, that they didn't release the real one, because according to Malachi Martin and a few others, the real one did not make the Roman Catholic Church look good. In fact, it said, you're going to go apostate, <laughs> and you're probably the whore of Babylon king. <laughs> I think that's what it said. And, of course, that's not really good for donations, so you don't want to put that out in the public. And it's amazing, um, but it's amazing how many guys that come out with this stuff, they take trips down stairways, they break their necks, they have their throats slit. Kind of a theme there, isn't there? Right, it is. And Malachi Martin, yeah, fell down some steps right as he was writing a book about how the Roman Catholic Church became a slave to the New World Order. That was the book he was writing That's when right. he fell down the stairs. Yeah. Okay, now... Yeah, you're talking about, there's been murders. Pope John Paul I was murdered. He was in the papacy 33 days and had a quote-unquote heart attack. And then the church found it improper to do an autopsy on him. Actually, they cremated his body, I think, the next day. Yes, they did. That so is they could not do right. an yeah. autopsy. I think he was poisoned. Pretty sure he was. And it was by this Luciferian group that still operates within the Vatican. Malachi Martin also revealed that this satanic group of cardinals, Jesuits, insiders in the Vatican, they really do worship Lucifer. They really are in there. They really are doing pedophilic satanic rituals. They had a parallel enthronement ritual in 1963 when Paul VI uh, made Pope. They had a parallel ritual at the exact same time, and they had, were connected by telephone. This was in 63, so it's about the best technology they had to connect each other. And they had a group in Charleston who was doing pedophilic rituals and other really disgusting things that I don't want to talk about while they inaugurated Paul VI. And the idea was they were turning over the office of the papacy. This is what they said from the nameless weakling, and by that they meant Jesus Christ. They were switching the authority of that office from the nameless weakling, Jesus Christ, to Lucifer. Okay. And that was the exact purpose of that ritual. It's documented. Uh, Malachi Martin wrote it in fiction and nonfiction. He wrote a book called Windswept Highs, and he calls it faction. He says it's 80% fact, but he couldn't, he was afraid to name some of the names in that book. But the one I'm talking about is the keys of this blood, and it's nonfiction, and it's geopolitical intrigue, but it also includes all this information as well. Uh, they're huge books, so I suggest using the index. And I have um, documented and put page numbers on all those citations about the parallel enthronement uh, and all that in my books. So it's there. It's in Petrus Romanus for sure. So they do this ritual purposefully to transform the papacy into the um, instrument of Lucifer, to make it the, the false prophet office. I mean, they purposefully did this. And, it, and Malachi Martin exposed it, and people have known about it since. And so there it is. Um, they did that. And if you look... And I did this in the new book that I'm writing right now. We hope to have it out this winter. It might be called The Last Crusade or something like that. I don't know if that's the title yet, but it's, it's in that theme. You know, if you look at every pope since Paul VI, this is that after Vatican II, was ratified. And this is when Martin got his release from his Jesuit vows because he saw it coming and he was disgusted. He knew that they were gone at that point, and so he quit. He didn't quit being a priest, but he quit being a Jesuit, and he got he was free to write and, and expose everything he wanted to. So, if you look at encyclicals and and papers, and, and I've been reading like crazy over at the Vatican Archive, 
every single pope since Paul VI has openly advocated redistribution of wealth. Even John Paul II, who Malachi Martin thought was a great hero for fighting Russia, he still wanted redistribution of wealth under a new world order, but he just didn't want it to be Russia. He wanted it to be the Catholic Church. And so there we go. I mean, they've been pushing for a Marxist new world order ever since and openly declaring that it's necessary even. And they've been undermining the gospel by saying you don't need to believe that Jesus died for your sins in order to be saved. At the same time, promoting liberation theology, which was undoubtedly invented by the Russians and the KGB to spread communism throughout Latin America. And that's where Bergoglio, Pope Francis, was the cardinal of Argentina, a major country in Latin America, and he was a Jesuit. And, you know, you never got into why him being a Jesuit is so important. This is why. The Jesuit order, Malachi Martin wrote, was just infiltrated with Marxists, with communists, and it was all this liberation theology stuff. The Marxist idea of taking money, you know, stealing it from the people who earned it, and then giving it away to the people who didn't, is, is corrupt. It's corrupt at the core. You know, if everyone was a Christian, there wouldn't be any starving people because we'd take each other care of each other because we loved each other, not because the government forced us to. And it's never going to work when the government tries to force you to. People are going to lie. The government's going to steal it. People are going to hide their money. You know, it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. It can't work. But the, the, the USSR used Patrick Krill, who is now basically their pope, to promote liberation theology, redistribution of wealth, taken from the rich, given to the poor, like Robin Hood. Um, you know, it's still theft. As a system, Marxism is doomed to fail because it doesn't understand the human condition. It, it basically assumes everyone's good, and they're not. And so every pope since Paul VI has openly advocated this new world order, the United Nations, and redistribution of wealth. Now... We have Pope Francis calling for a war against ISIS, um, really, I think, to institute this uh, global government. But here's where it gets worse. Patrick Krill, KGB agent. Vladimir Putin, KGB agent. The re-emergence of Russia. Russia surpassed us in nuclear arms a couple of years ago. So we're not, we're not the most superpower in the world anymore, by the way, because Obama cut our military down to you know, a, a little piece of what it used to be. At the same time, Russia was mining uranium as fast as they could and building nukes. So they got us as far as uh, sheer numbers right now. Plus, Obama's been negotiating away the locations of our missiles in Europe, basically giving away all our security uh, so that Russia could basically take us out at will, I think, at this point. And maybe that's where it's heading. I don't know. But KGB created liberation theology. It created all this controversy in Latin America. And uh, Cardinal Bergoglio was steeped in it. There's no way you could even be a Jesuit in Argentina and not be indoctrinated with liberation theology. It's just not even possible. You, you wouldn't have even been indoctrinated. You would never got in the order if you didn't at least sort of agree with it. So it's not surprising at all to me. Um, it's the same idea. It's Marxism, and it, it reads like the Communist Manifesto. I, and I've read the Communist Manifesto, and I've compared it to some of Pope Francis' encyclical. That one on the environment you're talking about, I believe, is the one that has some of the worst stuff. 
um, the one about climate change that he did recently. And climate change, I think, is just an excuse to tax the whole world. Seriously? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. They want to yeah. tax the air we breathe. And that's, that's essentially, I mean, when you're talking about a carbon tax, that is essentially fining you for breathing. But the bottom right. line is... When mo- you exhale, you have to pay for that. Absolutely. (laughs) I I document that in my book. Well, the bottom line is the Catholic Church has really become a creature of the New World Order. As Martin said, it's definitely in league with a lot of very secret Masonic diabolicus really here. It's really this very sorceress inception and embodiment in flesh. Well, it remains to be seen. But in any regard, we really look forward to reading your book, Chris. Thank you for coming on the program. Absolutely, uh, Sheila. my, My pleasure. Folks, that was Chris Putnam and his information's linked on today's bio. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. We'll see you next week. Good night and God bless.